0: how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 383. It's titled, How to Be a Successful Contrarian. Right after I graduated with a Bachelor's of Business Administration in Finance from the University of Cincinnati, I decided I should go get a job. I interviewed with Schaefer Investment Research. They are an options newsletter and service that's been in business over 40 years. In the interview, I was asked, what does it mean to be contrarian from an investment standpoint? I didn't know. I stumbled around. I came up with something plausible. We hadn't covered contrarianism in my undergraduate program. I didn't get the job. I lacked experience. I lacked the vocabulary of investing. I thought about this recently because I found an old Moleskine notebook that I began back in 2004. I used to carry this small notebook around with me. I would take notes as I flew many, many miles to various client meetings. One of the pages I found described my investment philosophy or As I tried to outline the investment philosophy of our investment firm, I probably wrote this back in 2006. I wrote that two decades of portfolio management had taught us to be skeptical, that despite slick marketing brochures, that most asset managers were unskilled. We met with over 700 managers per year, and only a few were on our recommended list. Asset managers are very good marketers. It's a high margin business. They can hire the best salespeople in the world that understand human psychology. I used to love to sit in manager search meetings where a new potential investment manager would present to one of my client's investment committees, say a university endowment investment committee, and just observe how these very skilled marketers presented. But I realized at the end of the day, marketing doesn't lead to investment success. Might lead to more clients, and as a result, we were very skeptical when it came to the asset management business. I wrote that we were also contrarian. Successful investing means ignoring the crowd. I jotted down, bucking the trend and focusing on what's out of favor. Joe Calhoun is president of Alhambra Investments. This is an SEC registered investment advisor. Has been in business since two thousand six. Joe developed Alhambra's all-weather multi-asset class portfolios. I have never invested with Alhambra, but as I was reading their blog, he discussed what it means to be contrarian, to invest against the consensus. He wrote, To generate better-than-average returns, your portfolio must diverge from the norm. But only when the norm reaches such an irrational state that normally rational people start to think that the irrational is actually quite rational. The perfect contrarian opportunity is one where you are the last rational person in an irrational world, which is, of course, quite irrational. Successful contrarians are looking out for extreme, extreme valuations, but they also want to recognize when that extreme has reversed some. It isn't enough just to be contrarian to go against the crowd because the crowd can be irrational for a very long time, enough to bankrupt us. So it's figuring out when things are starting to reverse after hitting an extreme. Calhoun says that only comes with experience. He writes, when you have been doing this a long time, you can sort of sense when we've reached that point, that point of extreme and then a reversal. And if you're wrong, you've been that way so many times across a long career that admitting it and taking a loss isn't as painful as it was when you were young and thought you knew way more than you actually did. Of all the things I've learned across 40 years of investing, the most important is that an ego is a terrible thing in this business. And if you have a big one, the market will do everything in its power to make sure it's deflated, along with your net worth. I also wrote in that Moleskin book that we as investment advisors were pragmatic. We focused on what works and is working rather than what should work in theory. Our clients win by not losing. And the way to do that is you focus on lower fees, lower expenses, lower turnover, globally diversified portfolios. Those are things we can control. We can control what we're paying in asset management fees. We can control how much we're paying in taxes by not turning over our portfolio too frequently. Successful investors are independent. I wrote that we form our own opinions, our own views based on experience. And we're innovative. The market evolves to become more efficient over time. Market participants get smarter. There's more firepower, more technology. And as a result, we have to work hard to stay ahead of the curve. Now, I still believe those things. I'm skeptical, contrarian, pragmatic, independent, and hopefully somewhat innovative. But focusing on being contrarian, what that takes is going against the consensus. What is the consensus right now? Bank of America does a periodic survey of investment managers. There are 292 panelists in their most recent survey that collectively manage $833 billion in assets. They released this survey. They conducted it in early April. What they found is the share of investors expecting the economy to deteriorate is the highest ever. Stagflation expectation, something that we talked about a few weeks ago, is the highest since October 2008 stagflation being a period of high inflation with subpar growth or even a recession. Bloomberg reports that these results from the survey highlight how gloom has taken hold among investors as the Federal Reserve begins raising its policy rate in order to slow the economy and hopefully reduce inflation. Investors are so bearish that it triggered Bank of America's buy signal one of the quantitative models that they had because pessimism hit an extreme which is a buying opportunity for that model. Most investors and consumers seem to believe a recession is coming. That's the consensus. You can see it in other surveys. University of Michigan survey of consumer sentiment. Its latest reading is 64.1 up from 55 last month. There's been a big drop over the past six months and over the past year. Calhoun pointed out in his post that the other times readings were this low, 1975, 1980, 82, 90, 2008, 2011. He pointed out that while they were not all ideal times to buy stocks, the downside risk was minimal, and some of them turned out to be great times to buy stocks. Looking at some data from Ned Davis Research, when that University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey has seen its six-month rate of change fall by more than 1.5 points, the average return on the S&P 500 in the next year has been 13.4%. The most recent six months has seen those consumer expectations fall by 5.6 points, so well below that threshold, when the stock market has typically had double-digit returns over the next year. If we look at the year-to-year point change, we're in an area where treasury bonds, long-term treasury bonds, have actually had positive returns, not negative. The American Association of Individual Investors recently released their surveys, where they ask investors whether they're bullish or bearish. If we look at the percentage of bulls, those that are optimistic about the stock market, divided by the number of bulls and bears together, the percentage of bulls is the lowest level since 1992. The consensus is extreme pessimism. That B of A survey says investors are very long cash Commodities, health care, energy, and materials, while they shun bonds, discretionary, and euro area stocks. Investors are now the most net overweight ever for commodities. Long oil and commodities is the most crowded trade. We discussed commodities last week. I don't own commodity futures. I own gold, but not oil futures or other commodity futures. Because the success, as I pointed out, is dependent on the consensus being wrong. And if the consensus is so bullish that it's their biggest trade, that as a contrarian, I should actually be positioned for commodities to fall in price once perhaps we hit an extreme and start to see a reversal. But I'm not courageous enough to do that because I have no idea which direction commodities will go. It's a zero-sum game. But that's how they're positioned. They believe that the economy will continue to have high inflation and will have a recession. Joe Calhoun writes, Jerome Powell, Federal Reserve Chair Powell, is about the only person on the planet who thinks the Fed will pull off the ever-elusive soft landing. Soft landing is when the Federal Reserve is raising its short-term policy rate, leading to higher long-term rates. That reduces demand in the economy, it reduces inflation, but a soft landing is one that that's accomplished without an economic contraction or higher unemployment. The Wall Street Journal points out that during the past 80 years, the Federal Reserve has never lowered inflation this much without causing a recession. If we look at a study by Capital Economics, they looked at the 16 times going back to 1978 that the U.S. The UK and the Eurozone have started to raise policy rates. The central bank, so it's called tightening. So they start increasing short-term rates. It flows through the economy into longer-term rates. 12 out of the 16 times, the US, UK, or the Eurozone fell into a recession. In the US, it was six out of eight times. So the probabilities say the Fed and other central banks will not be successful in avoiding A recession, which is two quarters of economic contraction. But if we look at what actually caused those recessions, it wasn't necessarily because interest rates were higher. One reason is some type of exogenous shock. Think 2020. The Federal Reserve had been raising interest rates, its policy rate, for 36 months. The economy was slowing. The Federal Reserve was on the cusp of pulling off a soft landing, and then we had a pandemic, and we shut the economy down, and that led to a very deep recession. But the recession only lasted two months, and now we're in a recovery. That's one reason the recession occurred. Another is the Fed was, or other central banks were slow to raise interest rates, or they kept rates too low, and an asset bubble formed. And when it burst, it led to a recession. We saw that in 2008. When the housing bubble burst and all the economic turmoil from that bubble and other bubbles. A third reason we see recessions is because we have high inflation, the central bank has to be extremely aggressive in raising its policy rate. And they overcompensate, raise rates too much, too fast, too aggressively. And that leads to a recession. And that is what the consensus believes is going to happen today. Most people think the central banks will not orchestrate a soft landing. That's the consensus. If we're contrarian, we position against that. One of the questions is, if a recession hit, how long would it last? And how many months do central banks have to raise interest rates before we even get a recession? If we look at those... 16 periods of tightening. The shortest period before a recession hit was four months. The longest was almost four years, 44 months. So maybe we should wait till there's more evidence of a recession before we pull back risk, especially because everyone appears to think a recession is coming. A successful soft landing will depend on energy prices falling, some of these supply bottlenecks easing, It very much, though, depends on employment. If there is a worker shortage, and that is pushing up wages, which causes companies to have to raise their prices, leading to higher inflation, and then ultimately demand shrinks and we have a recession, that's potentially what could happen. But there's actually good news on the employment front. If we look at the participation rate, The percentage of workers, 25 to 54, in the U.S. that are working, it's 82.5%. Close to the 83% it was prior to the pandemic. So primary working age population, they're returning to work as they become more comfortable with the pandemic easing, as they are able to solve some some of their child care concerns. They're returning. It's workers over 55 that have not returned as quickly. Many have retired early and might not be returning. But participation rates are up. You're seeing, particularly in the areas where the greatest shortages were, leisure and hospitality, for example, that less workers are quitting. And the number of unfilled vacancies is leveling off. Early signs that maybe these upward wage pressures are flatlining. And we're not going to see as much in terms of higher wages, which can then feed into inflation. We don't know. But not all is negative when it comes to what's going on with employment. If we look at the number of businesses that say jobs are hard to fill, that has actually fallen, less are saying that, and the job opening rate has plateaued. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. If then you want to position against the consensus and be contrarian, one way to do that would be to own long duration bonds positioning for falling interest rates. Now, I I wouldn't do that, and I'm certainly not positioned for that. Last weekend in Plus Episode 382, we looked at some historical studies of those eight tightening cycles in the U.S. where the Federal Reserve was raising its policy rate. Interest rates peaked at about the level of the Fed funds rate, the short-term policy rate that the Federal Reserve. And in seven of those eight tightening cycles, the 10-year treasury yield peaked a few months before or after the last rate hike. The Federal Reserve has just started raising its policy rate. Now, if you believe it will only have to raise rates a couple times and we're heading into a recession, then maybe you go long, long long-duration bonds. But I believe that we have a number of years of the Federal Reserve raising its policy rate before we potentially see a recession. So my contrarian positioning is to be willing to take on more credit risk. Late last week, I increased my allocation to bank loans, non-investment grade variable rate debt. I did it through a closed-end fund that had a very wide discount to its net asset value. But that's a contrarian position, taking more credit risk. Another contrarian position is investing in Japan stock right now. The Japanese yen has weakened fairly significantly relative to the dollar. It's its weakest it's been since 2015. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago in a plus episode. When a currency weakens, like the yen, that brings down the returns of stocks if you're a dollar based investor or a euro based investor, because your returns are being generated in yen, but then you have to convert them back to your home currency. And if your home currency is strengthening relative to the yen, then your returns are lower. And it's been about a five to six percentage point drag. But what else is going on in Japan if we look at the performance differentials between Japan and the U.S. stock markets from 2012 to 2021, most of the underperformance of Japan has been due to valuations. Even if we adjust for different sector weights, and this was work by Capital Economics, Japan has gotten cheaper relative to the United States stock market. One of the model portfolio holdings on Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a small cap Japanese ETF. The PE is down to 7.7 from 11 a year ago. It's been in the portfolio for almost two years now. And the last nine months have been a struggle. Sometimes when you're contrarian, it's painful. Because things haven't hit an extreme and reversed. And getting the timing right as a contrarian is not easy. And it takes patience. And sometimes you you'd make a trade and you just hold on. Successful contrarians seek out value with some momentum elements. Value is when something is priced or valued less than its inherent or intrinsic value. The risk of value is you get a value trap. The prices never recover. Momentum is is when something is growing and continues to grow. So there's a positive trend. It could be a positive price trend, a positive earnings trend. The risk of momentum is is a crash. You have these high flyers, they disappoint and they fall. To be contrarian, and it's really hard to do, is to get both of those aspects. Sometimes we find the value, we buy, but it takes a while before the momentum kicks in. Back in 2011, Leprill and I purchased a home and farm in Teton Valley, Idaho. It was fairly close to the bottom, but it took a while for the momentum to kick in. By 2016, we had split it. The property was 80 acres. We split it in half and sold the 40 acres and the house, and we kept 40 acres. Things were starting to improve, so we took some of those profits, and we bought a cabin on 10 acres. And then, as you know, we've had the pandemic. Many people want to move out into the country, and we were finally able to sell that remaining 40 acres at a a big profit, but it took a decade. It was contrarian at the time, and then finally the momentum kicked in. We, my partners and I, sold our investment firm back in 2002 and then bought it back in 2005 at half the price that we sold it for. We borrowed a significant amount of money to do that. At the time, I thought about leaving and starting something new, but I saw the momentum that we had at our business, particularly the investment product that I oversaw. We were starting to get client traction. We had a really good track record, so I stayed. We rode that momentum, and then I left in 2012 in order to realize the value we created. It's not easy to get value and momentum right at the exact same time. Sometimes you're early it does take patience. I talked to a guy the other day who was moving from his apartment in Tucson. He was moving, he and his wife, to Wooster, Ohio, where he grew up. He was like so excited to go because he was buying, I think it was his great-grandmother's house for $80,000. His uncle was going to buy it, and he found out about it, so this young man arranged to buy the house. That is somewhat of a contrarian move. I'm not quite sure what the economy is like in, in Worcester, but I suspect it's not quite as vibrant as Tucson. But he's taking the opportunity that he sees. If we broaden out this idea of contrarianism from investing and look at it in terms of our life, looking for those opportunities that are underappreciated by others or where there's some momentum aspect to it. In that same notebook, that moleskin. I took notes from a book I was reading back in 2004 by Clayton M. Christensen, titled Seeing What's Next, Using Theories of Innovation to Predict Industry Change. He writes to look beyond the sheer size of a market to its growth rate and how that growth rate is increasing. If you're looking for momentum or underappreciated opportunities, see where there's growth and look at niche demographics such as teenagers, small businesses, developing countries. Look at what they're doing. Many opportunities in the marketplace and industry is with small niches where they put up with imperfections. They're willing to accept good enough in order to do something that they've never been able to do before. Back in 2001, when when we moved to Idaho, I started telecommuting. The technology was not great, but I was willing to put up with it. Lousy webinar software and all that because I wanted to work from home. Now it's so much easier. The other opportunity is what Christensen calls overshot customers, where you have feature creep. The company keeps adding more premium features, many which we don't want or even need or, even, or value. I think of QuickBooks. I'm a QuickBook client. QuickBook has so many features I don't need. And they keep raising my price. I keep downgrading the package I want. But that's where a startup in the accounting space, online accounting, bookkeeping has an advantage. They can come in at a lower price with less features. Christensen points out that once functionality and reliability is good enough, then you can compete on ease of use, compete on convenience, how flexible and easy is the product to use. How customized is it? Can you customize for a smaller niche or potentially even to compete on price? One way to tap into these contrarian opportunities in life is to just keep experimenting, try things, failing And as you fail, you build skills and inventory to take advantage of the next momentum wave you see. When I quit my investment advisory firm in early 2012, I launched four different website services and I shut them all down and told myself, I'm done, I'm retired. I had blogged periodically starting in 2005. I launched a investment-related blog in 2008 anonymously, but then I shut that down. And I look back at the things I shut down. I, if I had gone all in in Instagram when it first came out, I had an account. More active in Twitter, I wasn't. But I was one of the first 100,000 to have a Twitter account. Had I stuck to that blog and the investing space, had I been more dedicated to YouTube, all of these things, I experimented and I, just, I just, just didn't do it, just didn't work for me. And I remember when I shut down the blogs in 2012 and those services, just the impression that you, you need to stay in the game so you can teach your children how to to market, how online business works. And it was the next year that I launched money for the rest of us because I saw a niche. I saw a podcast, which had been around since 2004, but now you had unlimited data plans. And so that time I got the timing right. And now all three of my children ha- are actually working with me now. The point is, contrarians look for underappreciated, undervalued opportunities that hopefully have some momentum. There's a shift in the trend. Often we're just early, and it takes a while to figure it out as we make mistakes, as we fail, but that's what it is. You just keep looking. You're willing to accept good enough to get what you want. You're willing to fail in many small ways, but you never go all in so that you can keep playing the game. You're especially looking for opportunities where there's some upside but limited downside. And one way to do that is you take small positions. And then when you see something working, then you invest more in it and take advantage of that positive momentum. One final thought then on being contrarian, thinking about this young man moving to Ohio, he got an opportunity to buy this house. When I look at the opportunities I've had, I realize you just never do it alone. Where did I get the capital to buy ownership? In my investment firm in 1998, that then we sold and then we bought back again. I got it from my parents. My parents bought our car, a used car we had, so we could put a down payment on our house. The human capital that allowed me to build the skills in investing. Where did I get the money for that? Government grants, scholarships. My parents let me live at home. I've had mentors. We don't do it alone. And that's why we reach out and help others and kind of be the stepping stone for them as they're building their career, they're building their opportunities, they're learning how to combine value and momentum as contrarians. That's episode 383. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that, but have you subscribed to my email newsletter, The Insider's Guide? It's where each week I share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to a list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love for you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for over seven years. Plus Membership gives you the tools and resources you need to manage your investment portfolio. Not only do you get access to my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but Money for the Restless Plus has partnered with top-tier institutional research firms, such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSEI, and Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over 1,000 members, to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to an institutional research service that can cost upwards of $10,000 per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more about Plus membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.